Always great to be with you and excited about this morning in the Word as we continue the journey through the life of Elisha in practical lessons on faithfulness. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 3. And I was just talking with my uncle and talking about how it's kind of disappointing that I'm skipping the story about the bears mauling the 40-something young people. It seems like a very appropriate Yosemite passage, does it not? But, alas, I only have six messages on Elisha. And though that is a phenomenal one, which guides us or leads us to respect and definitely a message necessary in our nation, very necessary, we must pick and choose. And so therefore, we're going on to 2 Kings chapter 3. Now, it's kind of neat that 2 Kings chapter 3 is about three kings. Um, in fact, this would be the appropriate story when talking about we three kings. Uh, in fact, I always find it funny that somehow that gets labeled in the story of Christ's incarnation and the, the birth uh, of Jesus. And that's really, that's really kind of an American thing, actually, because uh, if you go to other countries, and I've lived in some of these countries, they'll say there's uh, like eight kings or 11 kings. There's all these different traditions. For some reason, America hangs on to three kings because there were three different gifts. So there you go. You got your three kings. Next time somebody says, I want to hear the story about three kings, turn to 2 Kings chapter 3. <laughs> and this is where the Bible talks about three kings. So let's see what it says, and then we'll get to the lesson on practical faithfulness coming out in the life of Elisha. Now, I need to make one small comment before. I'm going to read it in ESV, and that's what I've been reading from this week. But there's going to be one verse that is actually a focal point in today's message. And you'll see why I'm saying what I'm saying. It's not like I just read every translation and find the one I like best for that verse. But there is one verse that's very difficult, and I'm going to actually go to New King James Version for that one afterwards. So if, as I'm reading, you say, wow, that seems quite different in my, um, in my translation, don't be distraught about it, because both make a point which is backed up all throughout the Word of God. There's no contradiction going on. It's just a bit of clarification on the actual translation of that one verse. So I say that now, so then later I don't need to give any, uh, any, any uh, reason for what I'm doing. Let's read the whole chapter. I ask you to really pay attention. We can sometimes lose our attention when we read more than five verses. So please, follow along. It's an amazing story about three kings. Verse 1, 2 Kings chapter 3. In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 12 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother. For he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. Now, Mesha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder. This is important. This is your background. And he had to deliver to the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So King Jehoram 
marched out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. And he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, the king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to battle against Moab? And he said, I will go. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Then he said, by which way shall we march? Jehoram answered, by the way of the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. There are your three kings. And when they had made a circuitous march of seven days, there was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Then one of the king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat the king, and the king of Edom went down to him. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, No, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. But now bring me a musician. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he said, Thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, You shall not see wind or rain, but that the stream bed shall be filled with water, so you shall drink, you, your livestock, and your animals. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand, and you shall attack every fortified city, every choice city, and, and every fell, sorry, and shall fell every good tree, and stop up all springs of water, and ruin every good piece of land with stones. The next morning, about the time of the offering, the sacrifice, behold, water came from the direction of Edom till the country was filled with water. When all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to put on armor from the youngest to the oldest were called out and were drawn up at the border. And when they rose early in the morning and the sun shone on the water, the Moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood. And they said, this is blood. The kings have surely fought together and struck one another down. Now then, Moab, to the spoil! But when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose and struck the Moabites till they fled before them. And they went forward, striking the Moabites as they went. And they overthrew the cities. And on every good piece of land, every man threw a stone until it was covered. They stopped every spring of water and felled all the good trees till only its stones were left in Kir Haraseth. And the slingers surrounded and attacked it. When the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. Look at verse 27. Then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel, and they withdrew from him and returned 
to their own land. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we come to your word recognizing it's your word, and we need you to touch our hearts. So we look to you and you alone. Father, have your way among us. And I just ask if I say anything not guided by you, wipe it out of our minds. But whatever is from you, embedded on our hearts that we might be changed. Glorify your name and yours alone. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Four things we want to pull out of this passage, and we're going to have to move very quickly. Very, very quickly. The first thing that we want to pull out here is I want you to notice the powerless predicament. Powerless predicament of these three kings. Now, I would love to talk more about the first few verses to show you the, the wickedness of this Jehoram, the son of Ahab. We're not going to go into that, but please take time later to see how he clings. He clings to certain sins, and the people are suffering spiritually because of it. But these three kings, not godly men, so to speak, one of them, it seems, had won a decent relationship with the God of Israel. But that being said, these guys go to war. And as they go to war, they end up in a powerless predicament. And that is that after seven days, they find themselves in enemy territory with no water. This is very serious because it's not just them. It's their animals basically saying here they're in a place where there doesn't seem to be much hope. Now, I find this to be beautiful because what we actually have, and this is important in our own lives, when we come to powerless predicaments, it's oftentimes that very predicament that is the stage for our deliverance. But the thing is, God in his mercy brings us to a place where we recognize our desperate need for him. Let me say it like this. The problem is not that you cry out to God in desperation. The problem is you fail to realize you're always desperate. That, that's an issue. And it's God's mercy when he puts us in a powerless predicament. Because the fact of the matter is, you can't control your next breath. It is a gift of God. So let me ask you, are you living in desperation? I, I, we celebrate Independence Day on July 4th in this nation. I celebrate in space, dependence, every day, in God. That's where we have to live. If you're not desperate for God today, you are looking at yourself, your own abilities, and ultimately you have made yourself an idol in your life. We need to live desperate on God. I pray prayer for for people I love, especially young men that I disciple. I say, God, drive them to a point in their life where they see no option but you. Some of these guys have ended up in prison. And it's there that they find the peace and hope they're looking for. Some of these guys end up in places they would have never chosen. And I praise God when they get to that place where they cry out saying, I can't. Let me ask you, are you in that place today? I don't care if you've walked with the Lord 30 years. If you're living dependent on yourself, you're out of place. 
powerless predicament. Don't look at that as a negative thing. See that as a positive thing. They're in a powerless predicament. But what happens? In that predicament, they say, is there a prophet of the Lord? <laughs> That's great. These are like a couple of wicked kings with uh, Jehoshaphat. And the three of them are like, is there a prophet of the Lord? And they're like, oh yeah, don't miss this. Please don't miss this. This is so important. This is great. Who knows that Elisha's around? Does Jehoshaphat, does Jehoram, does the king of Edom? No! Who knows that Elisha is among them? I love this. It says, one, verse 11, one of the king of Israel's servants answered. This is a common theme in the life of Elisha. Elisha did not have a real pleasure with kings. Even here, he was a little bit obnoxious, wasn't he? He's like, I wouldn't even look at you or talk to you if it wasn't for that king that fears the Lord. Bring me a musician. I mean, like, the way he interacts with kings, it, it can be humorous, but it really is something. Like, who knows him? It's the servant that knows him. Later on in chapter 5, who is it that says to Naaman, there's a prophet? It's a little girl who's a servant. In, uh, in chapter 6 of 2 Kings, who is it that, that, that uh, Elisha spends his time on? His servant. Elisha was a man who hung out with, the world would say, the lowly. Very different than many. Even when Naaman came wanting to be healed, Elisha didn't even answer the door. He sent his servant. He didn't feel the need to get his picture with Tiger Woods. He didn't feel the need to Instagram hashtag famous. He had one he stood before. Did you notice that? He even says it right here. Look down just a bit there in verse 14. And Elisha said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand. That's a technical term. Do you know that? It's a technical term giving your job description. Before whom I stand. He's saying, this is my occupation. I daily stand before the Lord. That's my position. I don't stand before kings. I stand before the king of kings. And because I stand before the king of kings, I can stand before kings and say, bring me a musician. I love this. Do you know who you stand before? Who do you give account to? Whose opinion do you really care about? I think Elisha actually cared more about his relationship with servants than he did kings. Well, the point is they had a powerless predicament, so they sought the Lord. They sought their idols when they didn't need any help. And they sought the Lord when they truly did. Let me suggest that's our lives too. We have so many idols for our leisure. We have so many idols for our own pleasure. We have so many idols for our daily life. Our computers, our mobile phones, our friends, our family. And then when it really gets desperate, we say, oh yeah, I, I need the Lord. Powerless predicaments. That's actually called our every moment. So what happens? Well, we go from a powerless predicament to punctual preparation. When I say punctual preparation, I'm saying it's a very urgent need to respond immediately. I know, I used a couple words that meant the same thing there. Urgent and immediately. But what's going on? There's a punctual preparation. When they come to Elisha, he says, yeah, call a musician. And I 
actually love that. This morning I was praying with a, a group of guys and two ladies and and it was interesting. And, and please, you know who you are. Yesterday I talked about our small group and they were like, uh-oh, what did we say wrong? You said nothing wrong. Uh, but you said in your prayer, Lord, help us to turn off the music. And I was thinking, oh, later today I'm going to say turn on the music, all right? But what's the point? I know what you were saying and you know what I'm saying. We say turn off the music because we have distractions in life. And here, what's Elisha doing? There's a lot of distractions of the voices of kings. He's like, bring a musician. The same thing that, that David did for Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 16. God uses gifts. And I love that. I say that not for myself because I'm not a musician in any way and I don't even really like listening to music much. I listen to Kenny G and that is about the extent of my playlist. Some of you just like, like okay, I no longer respect you. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. I like Southern Gospel too. And now you're like, I really don't respect. <laughs> um, when I go on long car rides, 12 hours, if I'm by myself, I don't turn a thing on. Dead silence for 12 hours. I love it. I crave silence. But the picture here is beautiful. We need to put ourselves in places where we can hear the voice of God. Do you? And what does God communicate to Elisha? Verse 16. Thus says the Lord, and this is the verse that I want to read from the KJ, NKJV or KJV, whichever one. And you might say, well, why is it so different? In ESV, it says, For thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. In uh, the NKJV, it says, make this valley full of ditches. That sounds pretty different, right? Well, let me read it to you as it, like, if it was, just inter if it was translated literally, okay? Literally, it says, making this valley cistern cisterns. Making this valley cistern cisterns. <laughs> making this valley Okay, wait. Who's making? That's the point. The object's not mentioned there. Now, I want to tell you why I want to see it the way that the King James is translating it, and that's to make this valley full of ditches. This is very consistent with other stories in Elisha's life. The very next chapter, which we're not going to look at, is a chapter where you've got this widow with two sons. And what is the very principle that goes on? Well, for her to survive, she's got to go collect all these empty jars. And I'm not going to go into the story, but the point is that she had to make a preparation for the blessing that God wanted to bring. That's what we're going to look at here with punctual preparation. Well, what goes on? God's saying, and again, I'm just going confidently into this, make this valley full of ditches based on the overall picture here. Make this valley full of ditches. Here we have men who are exhausted, seven days in the desert. They don't have water. They've got enemies around them. And God says, make this valley full of ditches. Okay, wait, wait, wait. So we need water. And you're saying, get our shovels out. Does it ever seem like what God wants you to do almost seems counterproductive to what you seem to be able to offer the situation? This is the issue with faithfulness. You want to live faithful to God? He gives you his word. He does not always explain how his word's going to play out. Now here, he does say what's going to happen. He says, you're not going to see wind or rain. But the stream bed shall be filled with water, so you shall drink it, your livestock, your animals. 
This is a light thing. I love that. Light thing. You know that word light thing in verse 18? It literally means insignificant or swift. In other words, it's easy. God's saying, what I'm about to do is so easy for me. Like, I just speak the word and like the water comes gushing. Like, it's nothing. But what's necessary? You got to dig ditches. In our spiritual life, I am so confident that God sends water constantly. I believe that in our lives, he wants to, when I say blessed, remember our definition of blessed. We're not talking worldly blessing like you're going to have an easy life. I'm talking blessing like persecution and God working through you. But I believe God wants to send rivers of blessing constantly in our life. The problem is there aren't ditches to collect the blessing. I'm going to explain that in just a minute. What he says here is get out the shovels and get working. Do you ever feel like, you're like, God, I, 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 want, I want you to do a great thing in me. I just like, I, 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 I only have a little bit of strength left. And the Lord's like, yeah, a little bit of oil. Is that what you got left? Yeah, pour it out. Or, or like with Elijah, make me some bread. I want to challenge you. Don't look at what you don't have. Look at what you do have. You might not have water, but you have a shovel. We're to use what God's given us, knowing that as we, in accordance with the word of God, dig the ditches he tells us to dig, that he's going to provide what we need in that circumstance. And that's the exciting thing with the way the Lord works. Now, how does that look in our life? There's oftentimes we pray for something. Maybe it's something as simple as we pray for a husband or a wife. Well, pray for a husband and wife, you might say, uh, God's got to bring it. Well, are you digging the ditch? And what I mean by digging the ditch here is, are you taking the word of God and, and being the man or woman that he's called you to be in absolute holiness? Or are you acting like the world and just pursuing the opposite sex, like some kind of, uh, some kind of unreasonable beast, as Jude would say? Just going off of your instincts and looking just like the world. Well, I'll tell you what kind of girl or guy you're going to get. A relationship like the world. Why? Because you're not digging the ditches God's called you to dig. You're just desperate and you're living independent of what he said. My point being is if you want the blessing of God, you dig the ditches that he says in accordance with his word, even when maybe it seems, man, this is not the direction of what I'm looking for. In the word of God, Elisha is a great example of this. In the word of God, we have over and over this principle. Let me say it simply. Are you ready? Here we go. Write it down. Daily obedience will lead to divine opportunity. Daily obedience will lead to divine opportunity. You dig the ditches, and that's when the water gets stored. Uh, let me give you examples. Noah. Noah constructed a boat on dry ground before cruising the earth on a flooded plain. Abraham was found pitching a tent. That's his ditch. Pitching a tent before parenting a nation. Joseph was counseling prisoners before consulting a potentate. Moses was shepherding flocks in the desert before standing before Pharaoh and then shepherding a nation. David was writing choruses out in the fields before wearing crowns in the palace. Daniel was resisting compromise. That was his ditch. 
He was resisting compromise on a daily basis before a pagan king. There's nothing very heroic about resisting compromise, is there? But he resisted compromise before receiving commendation from the lips of that king. Elisha? Elisha was plowing fields before being promoted to a prophet. I don't know what ditch God's asked you to dig, but don't demean it. Because God's ready to fill that ditch with his blessing. He's ready to fill that ditch with showing who he is in your life. But I truly believe we want the water before the ditch. It's not about your effort. It's about your obedience to his promises already. He's already told you his character. He's told you who he is. He's told you what he thinks. But is there punctual preparation? Or are you just like, well, let's first see what God does. No, no, you're not even ready for the water. The water will come and your life will be empty to receive it. I want to ask you very practically right now, today, what ditch does God have you dig? Maybe it's a conversation with someone. The word of God will hit many lives today, but maybe you need to build a relationship. Maybe you need to have a conversation. Maybe you need to go apologize. Maybe you need to offer a confession. Maybe that's digging a ditch. Maybe in humility coming with an attitude and saying, I'm sorry. I've, I've been resenting you for this. Or I've been holding pride in my heart against you. Maybe there's forgiveness to somebody that's sitting here and you have not forgiven them. That's wicked. That's wicked. Did God forgive you? Then forgive them. Is there anything among you all, brothers and sisters here today, that you're still holding against each other? You can't camp next to each other because you have a problem with each other. Oh, may God forgive you. But may you dig the ditch and get up and quickly pull them aside and say, I am sorry. I see the cross of Calvary that forgave me. You are forgiven. Dig the ditch. The blessing will come. Punctual preparation. You want a life of faithfulness? Dig the ditch in accordance with the word of God. Powerless predicament, no water. Punctual preparation, dig a ditch. The third thing we see is a plentiful provision. It says the country was filled with water. Filled. It says in verse 20, the next morning, about the time of offering the sacrifice, behold, water came from the direction of Edom till the country was filled with water. God does not just want to touch your life. He wants to fill. I say this over and over. God wants to bless you more than you want to be blessed. Now keep in mind my definition of blessing because it's the biblical definition. I'm not a prosperity preacher in any way, shape, or form. I believe what Jesus said he actually meant. I really do. But you want blessing? He wants to give it more than you want it. He loves you more than you love yourself. He wants you saved more than you want to be saved. We talked about that last night. Plentiful provision comes. These things fill with water. Then look at this. This is so exciting, okay? What happens when it fills with water and the sun shines down? It says in verse 22, the Moabites saw the water opposite them red as blood. Okay. Sometimes, like what were they going for? They were going for victory over their enemy. 
That's what they were. That, that was the original plan, right? They wanted to get those 100,000 like wolves from the rams. They wanted their 100,000 lambs back. That's, that was their goal. Did it seem like a detour that they didn't have water? Yes. Sometimes what you think is your problem is actually your pathway to victory. Don't despise the day of small things. And that's what happens here. They dig the ditch. The water comes. Not only are they drinking, not only are the horses drinking, but meanwhile, God is winning the battle. And he lets the, shot, the sun reflect in such a way where they think it's blood. And they say, mutinies happened. And they come in expecting to collect the spoil. And instead, what does God do? He literally hands the enemy over to them. Whether what you're dealing with is a job loss or whether what you're dealing with is cancer or whether what you're dealing with is misunderstandings, I don't know what your predicament is that you think is just a total distraction to your plans. I want to suggest to you that it's actually a gift from the Lord. You say, a gift? Cancer's not a gift. Like, well, why do we call these gifts? I, I actually do call it a gift. Do you remember Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12? He says, a thorn was given me in the flesh. Then he says, a messenger of Satan that I might not become conceited. Well, what's happening? Two things are happening. You've got a messenger of Satan, but that I might become, not become conceited. Since when does Satan not want you to become conceited? <laughs> he always wants you conceited. Oh, but hang on. There's two things happening. A thorn was given. The word temptation and the word testing are the same word. When it comes from God, it's a test. When it comes from the enemy, it's temptation. Why? The enemy wants you to be condemned. God wants you to be convicted. One wants you to change into the likeness of Christ. One wants to drive you from Christ. I want to suggest to you the very things that you want to give the enemy credit for, they had to pass through God first. You say, well, with Job, the devil came to God and said, hey, look at Job. He would, he would, he would uh, uh, totally like, deny your name if you gave him a hard time. And that's not how the story happens. God comes and says to the enemy, have you seen Job? God starts the conversation. The things in your life are not by accident. He's using them to make you look like Jesus. And he wants to fill the ditches with water. And ultimately, he gives victory over the Moabites. But that's not all. We have one more thing we want to briefly touch on. I just want to make sure I'm respecting time. Excellent. Eight minutes to go. We'll end in seven. Lord willing. You say... Don't bring the Lord into that. Just do it. <laughs> Look at the end of the chapter. The gospel comes out so clearly. And sadly, it comes out in a very backwards way. After the Moabites are not destroyed, but they're very defeated, they retreat. And after they retreat, they say, okay, we got to at least try to get through the enemy. And so the Edomites are on like one side of this hill. And so Mo the Moabites choose 700 men to go and try to break through. But they can't break through. They lose again. So then a very sad thing happens. 
The Moabites have this god, a god whose name is Chemosh or Chemosh. What's sad about this god to me is if you went back a little earlier in Solomon's time, Solomon married many pagan foreign wives, and some of his wives worshipped this god. So actually, King Solomon built altars for this god. So this god had actually even infiltrated God's people in this time. But what does the king of Moabite do? I want you to listen to the language because don't miss the fact that what we have here is a picture of the gospel in a very messed up way. And we'll bring it out in a clearer way at the end. Look at verse 27. Then he took his oldest son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son who was to reign in his place. Substitution. And offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. An only son who was high and lifted up for all to see. And there came great wrath against Israel And they withdrew from him, the Moabites, and returned to their own land. Now, this is really messed up. Because you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. If I get this right, the God of Kamash worked. Because basically, he makes this sacrifice to his God, and the the children of Israel flee. That is what happened. Great wrath. What's interesting about this story, by the way, is totally outside of biblical sources, there's a thing called the Moabite Stone, and this whole story is documented in other historical sources. Very interesting. From the other perspective. But, but, I want you to think about what happened. It says, great wrath came against Israel. I want you to see, the final point is a partial picture. A partial picture. When I say partial, it's messed up. It's backwards. But we have a partial picture of the Lord Jesus here. When I say partial again, it's a clear picture. But it's really from showing our need for him. They did not have complete victory because there was still compromise going on. But complete victory came a couple thousand years later, didn't it? And it came against the ultimate enemy, which you're speaking of, Warren. The enemy, the devil, yes, and the flesh. And what happened? There was a king, the king of heaven. And the king of heaven offered up his son on a wall of sorts, a cross. But you know what's interesting? Great wrath came against the enemies of the Moabites in this story. What's distinctly different about the gospel? (laughs) The great wrath did not come against the enemies of God when that son was offered up. The great wrath came directly on the son who was offered in our place so that we might have eternal victory. I want to encourage you all that this is not a message about trying harder. It's not a message of go dig ditches and make God happy with you. It's saying the wrath of God 
was taken by Jesus Christ so we can have a relationship with him. And in that relationship, he now offers us an abundant life. That life is through his son. But in that life with his son, we must recognize we are dependent on him. Our flesh will fail us every time. But his spirit will be faithful. And what will his spirit speak? It will speak the word of God. And the word of God will say, Walk in my ways, dig the ditches I've called you to dig, and I will do the filling. And you will enjoy the victory. If today you're feeling like you're living in defeat, I want to encourage you. Victory is before you. It starts with recognizing what the king's done for you, and then it follows by obeying the king's commands. He's given you his word. You don't even need a musician today. Just look down and read. Or look down and feel, brother. Praise God. We have not a partial victory. We have a complete victory through Jesus Christ. As I close out, I want to... It's 1019. I'm closing out. Let's pray. (laughs) Father in heaven... There's so much in your word that we would love to keep discussing. There's so much beauty that, wow, we just get excited to to discuss. But I just want to thank you today that you give us the opportunity to live a life where we enjoy your presence and we enjoy your power. And in this story, you made it so clear that you desire to work. But we are invited to dig. We are invited to be part of what you are doing. You say some plant and some water, but God gives the increase. And he who plants is nothing. He who waters is nothing, but God who gives the increase. So Lord, I pray today that you would convict us all that before us is the opportunity to enjoy the victory already won. I pray that we would take you at your word and not wait for the water to come flowing, but would use the shovel you've already given us and get digging even if we feel a little tired and a little thirsty. To you be the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.